Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. All right, let's turn to 2 Samuel 14, and I'm going to make you stand up again for the reading of God's Word. 2 Samuel chapter 14. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil. But be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days, then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Truly I am a widow, for my husband is dead. Your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field And there was no one to separate them, so one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against your maidservant, and they say, Hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, O my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me and on my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. So the king said, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you anymore. And then she said, Please, let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy, otherwise they will destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. And the woman said, please, let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, speak. And the woman said, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty, and that the king does not bring back his banished one. For we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now the reason I have come to speak this word to my lord the king is that the people have made me afraid. So your maidservant said, let me now speak to the king. Perhaps the king will perform the request of his maidservant. For the king will hear and deliver his maidservant from the hand of the man who would destroy both me and my son from the inheritance of God. And your maidservant said, Please, let the word of my lord the king be comforting. For as the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil. And may the Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered and said to the woman, Please, do not hide anything from me that I am about to ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king please speak. So the king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman replied, As your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. 
in order to change the appearance of things, your servant Joab has done this thing. But my Lord is wise, like the wisdom of the angel of God, to know all that is in the earth. Then the king said to Joab, Behold, now I will surely do this thing. Go therefore, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab fell on his face to the ground, prostrated himself, and blessed the king. Then Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, O my lord, the king, and that the king has performed the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king said, Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom turned to his own house and did not see the king's face. Now in all Israel was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. When he cut the hair of his head, and it was at the end of every year that he cut it, for it was heavy on him, so he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels by the king's weight. To Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a woman of beautiful appearance. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him, so he sent again a second time, but he would not come. Therefore he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose, came to Absalom at his house, and said to him, Why, has, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent for you, saying, Come here, that I may send you to the king, to say, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me still to be there. Now therefore, let me see the king's face, and if there is iniquity in me, let him put me to death. So when Joab came to the king and told him, he called for Absalom. Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king. And the king kissed Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. So a little bit of review before we get into this chapter. We've been dealing with David's sons. We've been dealing also with the fallout of David's household after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Right, And one of the things that was prophesied there was that his household would be uh, a wreck. That God would discipline him through his household after he had committed adultery and murder of Uriah. And so we've gone through that history. We've seen, um, I mean, the, the, the important thing to remember is that Absalom, his son, killed Amnon, his other son, because Amnon had violated Tamar. Right. So all of that is the immediate background to what we're dealing with here. And... And so we have, we have a son who is dead, we have a daughter who is raped, and we have Absalom who is in exile, away from Jerusalem in Geshur. And our chapter starts with, now Joab, right? And when, you, when, when your chapter starts with, now Joab, 
you know that something's coming that may not be exactly helpful to the kingdom. Uh, Joab has, we already know, Joab has committed murder himself, right? And um, he killed the one who killed his brother. Joab is the commander of David's army. He murdered Abner. He's, he was also the accomplice in Uriah's murder, right? He was used by David to put Uriah at the, the fevered pitch of uh, battle. And um, <clears throat> he perceives something, right? He perceives that the king's heart was inclined toward Absalom. Right? The killer of his own son, David's... David's heart is inclined toward Absalom, the one who killed Amnon. David's heart is inclined toward him. And and so Joab hatches a plan. And that is to manipulate David with a woman. I don't think it's any coincidence that, that Joab would send to him a woman, a widow... And that that would be somebody who would influence David. We know that David has, King David has multiplied wives. He has um, had trouble with the women of his household. And so I don't think it's any coincidence that Joab would put words in the mouth of a woman who would go to hatch this plan to get Absalom to come back. He's manipulating David. And it seems that he knew David. Joab was very close to David and knew David. And so the woman, the woman report gives a report. She's a widow. Her husband has died. Her two sons are out in the field. They're struggling. One son kills the other son. And the whole family wants justice. Right? The one son that's still alive, they want justice to come against him because he's killed this, this other son. The whole family wants justice. She, though, wants her son. She wants her son, an heir, to protect her household. Right. So that's, that's laid out to her. The story is given uh, to the king. And the, David jumps immediately into action. I'm going to protect you. I, you know, he will... Um, he will interfere with the avenger of blood. Now, what's the avenger of blood that's mentioned in verse 11? When, when in Israel you unintentionally kill somebody else, you could flee to a city of refuge, right? Murderers were punished, right? If you intentionally and by passion, if you commit what we call first-degree murder, you were you were punished for that. You were brought to justice. You were killed for killing. But if you unintentionally kill somebody, which it seems is the, is the case with these two sons, they're struggling in the field, and it, it appears one is killed by his brother um, unintentionally. And so the one who killed could have, could have fleed to a city of refuge. We read about that in Numbers 35. And you flee to the city of refuge that the manslayer who has killed anyone unintentionally, um, he may flee there, but the, the avenger of blood, the one who would bring justice, the one who would put the man to death who had committed this murder, 
would not be able to do anything to that man while he was in that city of refuge. He could stay there for he stayed there for how long? He stayed until the high priest died. And then he was allowed to go outside of the city of refuge. But if he went outside the city of refuge before the high priest died, he was fair game for that avenger of blood and could be killed for his crime. Right? So it took the death of the high priest. Now this is not parallel to Amnon and Absalom. Right? This is not Amnon and Absalom. Absalom kills kills Amnon after waiting two years and plotting to kill him and putting together this whole plan so that Amnon would be in his presence, that's first-degree murder, right? There's nothing unintentional about that. So the parallel between she's trying to get him to think about Absalom and she's using this story about her sons, whether she has them or not, and so, but the parallel doesn't quite work. It's not parallel. Absalom is is a... murderer, not a manslayer, right? He hasn't committed manslaughter. He's committed murder. David takes an oath. He's so serious about this. As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Puts himself under oath to protect that son. And so in taking that oath, you got to be thinking, okay, he's talking about the woman's sons, but we kind of have to apply it to what she's trying to get the king to think about, which is David's own son, Absalom. And so in a sense, now integrity requires of King David that he pardon Absalom. Right? That he pardon Absalom, that he not allow one of his hairs to fall to the ground. And then the woman just straight up brings up Absalom. Right? In verse, where is it? Um, 13, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is one who is guilty and that the king does not bring back his banished one. Absalom, banished outside the kingdom. And then she says, yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from her, from him. And I wonder whether that's a righteous statement or not. You think of Hannah's prayer, and you know Hannah says she's the one who kills and makes alive. God destroys and makes alive. God does take away life. He takes away the life of those who take away lives. Um, And there are times, I mean, he will banish his own son. I mean, he will banish his own nation, right? Israel is booted off the land for their infidelity. And then on the cross, there's a sense in which we could say that even God's own son is banished, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He becomes all sin at that point and is banished by the Father. And the woman goes goes on, so there are like two verses in this where she shifts to talk directly about Absalom, but then she's back to her own story. And some, some people were scaring her, so she appeals to the king, and um, she, she flatters him. As the angel of God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil. And David finally clues in, verse 18, 
David clues in, is the hand of Joab with you in all this? What is going on here? She affirms, why? Why does she do this? Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? And the woman replies, as your soul lives, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or to the left from anything that my lord the king has spoken. Indeed, it was your servant Joab who commanded me, and it was he who put all these words in the mouth of your maidservant. Why? Verse 20, in order to change the appearance of things. In order to change the appearance of things. That's what Joab is trying to do. He's trying to manipulate the king. He's trying to change the appearance of of David's relationship to Absalom, his son. And what does David do? He's swayed. He brings Absalom back out of exile. But, verse 24, let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So what do we make of David here? What do we make of David? Two years Absalom has been in exile. Or maybe longer. It's two years that he, he's back in Jerusalem and doesn't see the king's face. Two years. Right? He's back in Jerusalem and doesn't see the king's face. What do we make of this? Is this, is this David's strength or his weakness? Is this mercy or is this neglect? What do you think? Why do you say that? Okay. Right, right. I mean, I think this is the discipline of a weak man, right? He goes halfway. He doesn't complete the discipline of his son. He, yeah. um, and yet you have in the back of your mind the prodigal, Right? That example of the glorious graciousness of God and the son who spurns his father's inheritance and then pleads with him. But what does that son do when he returns? When, that, when the prodigal returns, he's repentant, right? He, is, he throws himself at his father's mercy and says, I've sinned against you and against God. Right? No such voicing from Absalom. In fact, it's very interesting that after, after he's brought back, what does it begin to describe? It begins to describe Absalom's glory, right? He's got this hair. He cuts it off and it weighs a lot. I don't know how, how much this weight is. Some of you have, a, have one of those Bibles that has the non-inspired words of man in it, like um, 
with notes. It might translate how much uh, weight this is. What is it? Uh, two, 200 shekels? What is, somebody's got a... 11 grams? 11 grams. Okay, hey, That's one shekel. So... Five pounds of hair. Now, hair doesn't weigh a lot. But he's got this head of hair. He has a mane, so to speak. And, um, and so, he's, it, now it's describing his glory. And, and there's, no, there's no repentance here. We'll get back later to what, what Absalom says. And it's interesting what he says. But now, why do you think it turns to his glory well, I, I think there's, I mean, obviously, the, the history that comes up, we know that Absalom tries to destroy his father's kingdom. He tries, tries to win the hearts of all Israel. And so in the next chapter, Absalom goes out to the city gate and begins adjudicating cases. And why is he doing that? Because he's trying to win the hearts of Israel. He's trying to draw Israel after him. And so here it's describing his glory when he cut his... Well, first of all, there was no one as handsome as Absalom, so highly praised. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no defect in him. And then it speaks of his hair, and it weighs 200 shekels. He cuts it off at the end of every year, rather than keeping it shorn, right? He wants his glory to be like the glory of a woman, which is in her hair, right? And so, and then it speaks of his three sons and one daughter whom he names Tamar, right? That's significant. Names it after his, um, his raped sister, Tamar. And she was a woman of beautiful appearance. So he's got gloriously beautiful kids. He's beautiful himself. He's, he's, um, he's back in Jerusalem, right? He's highly praised. And what does that remind you of, this section of Scripture? Does that bring back anything? King Saul, right? King Saul was a handsome man. He, he was a shoulder above everybody else in Israel. Remember, it speaks of his height. Uh, scripture speaks of his height. And then, of course, we have the whole falling out of Saul and God telling Samuel that, look, you judge by outward appearances, but I judge the heart, right? And so I think there's some parallel here between Absalom and Saul, and that his appearance is what gives him authority rather than, like King David, his heart, right? David described as a man after God's own heart. And so these are significant differences. And so David is weakly, and David, right, we also know that David has not disciplined his sons. We've learned that in other passages, and we see that played out. David uh, allowed his sons to go their own way, and Absalom's sin is never dealt with. And so it continues, right? When it comes to our children's sins, fathers have an obligation to do what they can to halt those sins. To stand by and allow our children to sin because we want them to remain our friends is to allow their sin to continue. 
It is, it is terrible wickedness and you're actually throwing bondage upon your children when you don't discipline them away from their sins. Right? They may choose to reject your authority. They may choose to rebel against you. They may choose to uh, not heed the Word of God, but better that than never have having warned them and the sin being on your own head. Right? Like the watchman in Ezekiel 33. And so we warn our children. We warn them to turn away from their sin. And David was not so good about that. Verse 25, again, handsome, highly praised, no de- defect, glorious hair, three sons, one daughter, beautiful. you got to think that this was David's favorite son. He's got everything going. He's, it's hard not to like your handsomest child. Right? We're that, we're that petty. Right? We, we, we're like, that, that guy is going to be, or that girl is going to be the head of his class and is going to marry well. And I think that um, David is, is playing favorites here. How could he not love this, the glory of the son? And Absalom is so full of his own glory, right? He, this, whole, this whole bit with his hair and cutting it off once a year. That's, that's him glorifying himself. Right? It's very much like Saul, 1 Samuel 9, 1, uh, and following. Saul is called choice and handsome. And from the shoulders up, he's taller than anywhere, anyone else. That's the outward appearance. What does God care about? The hearts. 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And of course, we can go elsewhere in Scripture. What about 1 Peter chapter 3? It says something very similar in a very different context. In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be one without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry, putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. And this is a glorious passage, which is precious in the sight of God. Precious. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, if you do what is right, without being frightened by any fear. Right? And so, the hidden person of the heart, the inward, is what makes one worthy of leading and beautiful. Right, And yet we always get caught up in appearance. All of Israel is going to go after Absalom because he's handsome. He's handsome. He's six foot eight and handsome. What kind of heart pleases the Lord? What kind of heart pleases the Lord? Is it, 
is it the kind of um, is it the kind of heart that uh, boasts in the self? Of course not. The heart that pleases the Lord is a faith-filled heart. It's a believing heart, but then it's also a broken and contrite heart. A broken heart. Right? There's no brokenness in Absalom's heart. We have a temptation to value only the outward, not the heart. We judge others this way. But even more importantly, I think we often judge ourselves this way. We have a tendency to judge ourselves and how well we're doing based upon our outward appearance rather than our inward inward heart or our walk with the Lord, right? We care more about the glory of our hair and the size of our gut than we do whether we've broken the commandments of God. Right? We become so insecure. We walk into a room of people that we've never met before and suddenly we're thinking about what they're seeing in us. Right? What they're thinking about the way we look. Think of that. We judge others by their outward appearance, but I think, I think what we don't give don't give too much consideration to and need to is that we judge ourselves by outward appearance. And we need to examine our hearts and do that work. Some of you may be um, well put together, handsome, and filled with all kinds of wickedness. Right? A putrid heart in a very pretty box. And that is, that is Absalom. It's not King David. King David was more of a wreck with a good heart. Absalom was, was a petulant boy, but a pretty boy who had the world before him. God sees the heart. Remember that. God sees the heart. God is looking at your heart. God is examining your heart, and He goes to and fro through all the earth to see whose heart is fully devoted to Him. So Absalom gets at, uh, so, so we get this, this situation. To Absalom, there were born three sons. Now Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem and did not see the king's face. Two years. Good move by David, bad move by David. Bad move, more negligence, right? More lack of communication, more not taking on the things that need to be dealt with, more abdication, just letting Absalom sit and stew and become more embittered against the king, and also not yet even still dealing with Absalom's sin of killing Amnon. That's the elephant in the room. He's a murderer. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him, so he sent another time and he would not come. And then Absalom's like, all right, you're not going to come visit me? I'm going to set your field on fire. I'm going to key your car. Right? I'll show you. And then these foolish words come out of Absalom's mouth. Come here that I may send you to the king to say, why have I come from Gesher? It would be better for me still to be there. 
Now, there's a sense in which he's absolutely right. To be back, to be, to be brought halfway into the graces of the king and then made to languish is, is in, a, in a real sense, torturous. He's not being disciplined. He's not being restored. He's just being brought near. Right? And, and then the king, and then he says, now therefore let me see the king's face And then he says, if there's iniquity in me, let him put me to death. Now that's real wisdom. That's him still thinking about his iniquity and his sin. And he's saying to the king, look, justice toward me would be better than this nothing. And so we find out what... David's going to do in response to that. And it seems so much that David is not acting in this passage, but he's being acted upon by other people. He's being acted upon by Joab. He's being acted upon by the woman of Tekoa. He's being acted upon by Absalom, but he's not acting himself. Right. So when Joab came to the king and told him he called for Absalom, Thus he came to the king and prostrated himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. There's a, um, there's a famous setting of, of uh, Abs- when, when Absalom dies down the road, there's a famous setting of David weeping and wailing. It's by Josquin, I think. Old medieval composer. And it's so gloriously beautiful. Just the weeping of David over Absalom. But it, part of me, when you, when you hear the beauty of it and the lamenting of it, you think, oh, David. David. And so I don't blame David for kissing Absalom. I think if one of my children was away from me for two years, and yet it had been my passive aggressiveness that have kept him there, and then finally we see, see each other face to face, I think I would probably fall upon my children's shoulders and kiss them. But I would hope that God would give me the strength then to say, okay, we need to go visit the sheriff. You're a murderer, son. And God tells us what happens to murderers, and we will deal with this. And that is what David should have done. David should have, should have delivered this man over to judgment, even as he loved him, even as they sat and talked together, even as he wept and kissed him. He should have been saying, in, in the gasps of breath, he should have been saying, you, you must do what's right in the sight of the Lord. You must repent of this sin, this terrible sin, and you must submit yourself to whatever justice may come, but it will be good for your conscience. It will be right for your conscience. And so, that is not what goes forward. Um, I mean, even looking into the next chapter, now it came about after this that Absalom provided for himself a chariot and horses and 50 men as runners before him. Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. And When any man had a suit to come to the king for judgment, 
Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And he would say, your servant is from the city one of the tribes of Israel, and then Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. And then he would just sway them and bring them under his, his judgment. Right? So Absalom is, is not repentant and is not brought to justice by David. Again, I think, I, I think about... Um, To appeal to God's mercy in a case that requires His justice is not wisdom, but sentimentality. That's what one of the commentators I was reading said. To appeal to God's mercy in a case that requires His justice is not wisdom, but sentimentality. Right? David is sentimental with his, his son. He's been, he's, he, he hasn't dealt with things. He's been off and on. He's brought him close, but not all the way. He's kept him at a distance, but didn't want him in exile. You see all these contradictory movements by David, and yet this is a case that requires justice, and that justice would have been good for God's people. It would have been good for David as a father and as the king, and it would have been good for Absalom perhaps leading him to repentance as he faced judgment by the by Israel, by the, the church. It may have brought him to repentance, though it may have lost him his life. Instead, he goes on in his petulance, he goes on in his arrogance and tries to draw the people after him. So make what applications you can from the things that we've talked about in this passage. Do you... Do you Judge yourself based upon your appearance and not by your obedience. Do you, are you a, a, a passive father that allows situations to happen around you, but you never act upon anybody in your own household? You never take authority and bring justice and practice mercy and forgiveness and kindness and things just happen around you. That's David. Are you more like Absalom? Right? You've you've committed terrible deeds and your conscience doesn't bother your conscience. You go on in your arrogance and you refuse to repent. You come brashly to the Lord's table knowing that there are sins you haven't dealt with and and it doesn't bother you. Well, consider that and examine yourself and see where it is. Wonderfully, in studying through the life of David, we have, we have a wonderful king, but we see the faults and the sins of King David, and it only puts in relief the glory of, the, of King Jesus, doesn't it? The glory of a king who always acted and was not just always acted, acted upon. The glory of a king who, who, um, who did not sin. Right? The glory of one who reigns over us, who is all compassion, all justice, all righteousness, never, never yielding to temptation, never giving in. And his kingdom, unlike David's, is not one that will be, uh, that will be racked with violence, 
but Jesus' kingdom is one that is peace and peaceful and restful. And wonder of wonders is people get to enter into that kingdom and into that household and be brothers to that king. And so praise God for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the conviction that it brings to us. Lord, we pray that we would do work of self-examination this week and every week until we stand in your presence uh, blameless and filled with glory and awe. And so, Lord, help us to do this work to, to your Uh, to the building up of your kingdom, and uh, Lord, to your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.